Well, let me start with this question. What causes you fear? I think we probably fairly quickly can identify something we may be afraid of as you're thinking about what your answer may be. Let me just introduce myself. My name's Jeff Bennett. I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here at Harbor to our online community. Welcome this morning. So glad you're tuning in now or at a later date, and hopefully you're connecting as well, or we're connecting with you during the week. And to each one of you here this morning, welcome. Welcome to Fall Fest as you came in. You saw the preparations are being made out there. And if I don't get a chance just to welcome you personally, just my welcome here now. What, are you, what causes you fear? For some of you, you might say heights. You know, CN Tower Edgewalk will not be on your agenda of things to do. For others, it may be snakes. That's a fairly easy one. You just stay away from snakes if you're scared of them. Small spaces, crowds. Uh, there's also, some of you may be afraid of public speaking. I think that's the number two fear of standing on the stage. I will never do that. Uh, but then as you think of some other things we could be fearful of, or just to try to broaden our perspective or understanding on that, think of the oven. Should we be afraid of the oven? Well, if you've got some cookies coming out of the oven and uh, you see a three-year-old running towards it, what are you going to tell them? No. Stay back, be very afraid this oven will burn you. So for a three-year-old, the oven, they should be afraid of that. For a 10-year-old, if they want to help bake cookies, you're like, sure, let me come and assist you. And if you've got an 18-year-old and they want to use the oven, you just go, just go right ahead. Just anything you want, just put it in there, just clean up after yourself. That's the instruction there. Sort of the same with a lawnmower. Right? If you've got a three-year-old, be very afraid of the lawnmower. You cannot use it yourself. You cannot play with it. It's not a toy. A 10-year-old, okay, be cautious. And an 18-year-old, please do not be afraid of the lawnmower. Use it anytime you like. Just head on out there. No need to be afraid. It's good. And so, it, it depends on these kind of things. You know, there's a lot that can depend on our level of fear. In fact, you can probably think back in a conversation that you had this week, and if you can't think of it this week, you'll probably run into it in the following week, where you're in a conversation with someone, and they ask you about something, and your answer goes something like this. Oh, you should have more fear. Or the opposite. Oh, you should have less fear. Depending on what you're talking about, the conversation can go either way. You know, oh, you should have more fear about that. Think of someone driving without insurance on their car. And they say, just, oh, I just drive without insurance. You'd be like, you should have more fear about that. Right? You, you should, and again, the conversation can go that way or it can go the other way. Oh, you don't need to worry about that. You know, everything's going to be okay. You should have less fear. And so if you think about it, fear just becomes a part of sort of our everyday experience in so many areas. We often are discussing it. And then we come this morning to one of the disciples of Jesus, Peter, and he's helping his original readers understand how to live a full life. And what Peter says is this, fear isn't a part of that. Part of your living a full life, part of your spiritual life has to have this value and this idea of fear integrated into it. And so even as you're pondering that through, you might say, well, is Peter saying we should have more fear or we should have less fear? In some ways, he's saying both this morning as we look in on these verses. Here's Peter's premise. Here's his premise. The life apart from God is an empty life. 
The life lived apart from God is meaningless and empty and insignificant, and it's almost like we're trying to fill our lives with things and they just drain out. Peter's premise is that the life apart from God is emptiness, and he's saying to his original readers, and then thus today, if you want to live a full life, let me give you some instructions, and one of those has to deal with the idea of fear. And so that's where we arrive today. I sure hope you've got your Bibles with you open or turn them on. And if you're new to Harbor, again, welcome this morning. What we do as a church is we just normally choose a passage of Scripture and we just walk our way through it. So there's no surprises on Sunday morning. If you want to see what's coming next week, you can just read ahead and you can see what's there today. Or we're in a book, or we have been for the last couple of weeks, written by the disciple of Jesus, Peter. And he wrote two books. They're named after him, First and Second Peter, wrote to some churches that he started. And if it was today's sort of geography, they'd be in northwestern Turkey. And Peter is writing these words to them, and we're in a section where we've just simply titled it, Peter's Heart is for Them to Live a Full Life. So look down to verse 17, and here's how he begins to wade into this topic and how we see fear. Now, this is the topic he comes to. Verse 17, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. So there you have it. The first clause we'll talk about in a moment. But Peter looks to his readers today, if you want to live a full life, live out your lives in reverent fear. Now, there's a little word in between there. You see, he keeps coming back to that same theme as foreigners or as exiles. This is not your home. Don't think it's your home. If you're a Christian, you know, our home is somewhere else. So you're a foreigner in the land, but live, live in reverent fear. Now, for those of you that were here two weeks ago, Peter, his main premise was this, be holy like God be holy like God. That was his first way we live a full life. And then how might we live a holy life? Here's his second thing, live in reverent fear, or as you will see on the side screens, be fearful of God. Peter is saying that part of the motivation for those who would call themselves Christians is fear. It motivates us to live a holy life. To, to, to live right. In fact, 2 Corinthians 7.1, you can look this up at another time. Here's what Paul wrote, same idea, perfecting holiness out of a reverence for God. What, what motivates us to be holy is keeping God in reverence and living in fear of Him. So, simply put, if you want the simple summary this morning, how do we live a full life? Be fearful of God. Now, I know that can raise all sorts of different emotions in us. And what we're going to see now, Peter, begin then to explain in this verse and then in the next two verses, 18 and 19, what we'll see in verse 18 is this. Here's the healthy fear of God. In some ways, the summary could be Peter would say, fear God rightly. And then we're going to see what that means in verse 17. He's also then, after he sort of explains to us what it means to fear God rightly, he's going to say, here's why you should fear God. So that's verse 17, how to fear God rightly, how to have a healthy fear of God, and then why we should fear God. And then in verse 18 and 19, and make sure you hang on here to this part, is this is where he says, here's an unhealthy fear of God. 
This would be a wrong fear of God. And so in some ways, Peter starts out by saying, fear God. And then over here, in verse 18 and 19, he says, you have nothing to fear. Or even as we talked about the oven and the lawnmower, you know, is it more fear or is it less fear? Peter's saying, here's healthy fear, here's unhealthy fear. Here's right fear and here's wrong fear. So let's first look at verse 17, which is the healthy fear of God, which is the right fear of God. Here's how he starts off, and you see it there in your Bibles. Since you call on a father, and let me just stop there. Since you call on a father, Peter has been developing this theme through the whole chapter. To be a Christian is to be adopted into the family of God. He just earlier had said, you're children of God. He's worked on this whole theme. Just listen to how good this is if you're a Christian. He says, God has chosen you. He's called you. He's given you a new birth. He's lavished his grace on you. He loves you and accepts you if you are in Christ. And you think how good those words are. And these were believers who were suffering because of their faith. They were being persecuted and mocked and ridiculed. And Peter wants them to know and just have this security in their hearts that God loves them. He's adopted them. He's lavishing his grace on them. And they are totally secure in the hands of God. This is the assurance he wanted the people he's writing to to have. And it's so wonderful. That's why Peter says, since you call on God, your father, he's your father. He's adopted you. You're in the family of God. It's wonderful assurance. But here's what can happen. And we know this can happen. When you hear all of that, you can think, oh, God loves me. He's adopted me. It doesn't matter how I live doesn't matter what I do. And we certainly see this happening today as we think about God. In general, we sort of lower the view of God. We have a domesticated view of God. We treat God lightly. You know, we almost trivialize God. Think of the Old Testament. The people of God would not even say the name of God out loud. They feared pronouncing His holy name. And think where we have ended up today. In, the, in our culture, the disregard, the dishonor, the disrespect, the disdain, the scorn towards God. And I have to be careful with this illustration, but in some ways, it's like we view God as a senile old man. You know, he's there, and, if, and he's just a nice guy, and if we approach him in a nice way, he'll give us some treats, but he's really a pushover. He's really oblivious to what is happening in our lives, and he really is quite powerless. In some ways, when we just elevate the love and acceptance and grace of God, that can be the God that we end up with. But this is not the God that's revealed in Scripture. Again, what the Bible tells us is sometimes we make God in our own image. And you might think, why would we ever make God in our own image? Well, because we like to control God. If we can make up the God we like, then we control him. Everything is manageable and everything's good. This is not the God we see in Scripture. The God that is revealed is so different. There's a story you're not pr probably familiar with, but there was a man named Samson in the book of Judges, and his parents actually had a visit from an angel. 
You can read the story, but they offered a burnt offering, and as they were offering this burnt offering, the angel went up in a flame to heaven. Sort of a strange story, but in that moment, Manoah, Samson's husband, or Samson's father, realizes that he was in the presence of God. And you'll see what he says on the side screens. He says, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. It's just this moment where Manoah is struck, and he says to his wife, we are doomed to die because we've seen God. Now, you can look in on that, and you can say, oh, you know, Manoah, he's an Old Testament guy, right? You know, they were primitive people. They're not modern people like we are. You know, they, they don't know. He didn't understand God the way we understand God. You know, he needs a fuller understanding of God. You know, he was an Old Testament guy. They don't quite all understand God. Manoah's got a wrong idea of God. We think, where did he get this idea from? Where, where would he have thought this from? Let me show you this verse from Exodus 33:20 on the side screens. God told Moses that you cannot see my face. For man shall not see my face and live. Where did Manoah get that idea from? He got it from God himself. Moses said to God, I want to see you. And God said to Moses, you can't see me because if you see my face, you will not live. You will die. Manoah is just quoting God here almost. And now we look at what God says and we're like, God, I think that's a misquote on you. Did you really say that? No, no this is actually God. These are, this is who he is and you see that we've lowered our sense of awe and respect for him. We've lowered our sense of the majesty of God. We can almost be flippant and cavalier, way too casual with God. And yes, the Bible says, call him Abba Father. Call him Daddy. You can have a personal, intimate relationship with him, but never to the degree that we would lose a healthy respect for him that we would not hold him in great awe and adoration. This is what Peter means. He says, you've got a father. You've got a great heavenly father, but live in reverent fear before him, in awe, in high regard. Uphold him, adore him, devote yourself to him. That's the picture that Peter is giving us of who God is. Live in reverent fear. Uh, there was a moment this sun, uh, summer, uh, and I don't know how it was where you live, but where we live, there was a thunderstorm. We just live that way, I guess, over by Farm Boy, if you want to know where we're at. But it was about 11 o'clock at night. I had already fallen asleep, and there was this enormously loud thunderclap. You know, and the light sort of flickered at the same time in our home, and it woke me up. I think I yelled a little bit. I was startled. I was like, wow, what just happened? And I had not heard a thunderclap that loud. I don't know if any of you remember that. Now, maybe some of you have lived in a place like a rainforest where that just doesn't happen once, but it can happen for hours on end. Like it's like the cloud has descended upon you and you hear the thunder and the lightning and the rumbling. I've been in that kind of storm just once in my life where you feel just encompassed around it. And I think this is a good picture for us to mark what the holiness of God is, what the awe of God is. That kind of the storm of his 
holiness and righteousness that, that when those thunderclaps come and the lightning comes, we, we, we tremble a little bit. We're in awe of the power behind it. I, I like this illustration better, and I know other times I may have used, and I think it's still a good illustration, the idea of Niagara Falls, where you go to Niagara Falls, and it's certainly relevant for us because we've, we've all been there and seen it, and you see the water tumbling over, and you stand in awe and reverence of the power and the majesty of that, and I think that's a good illustration as well. The thing I think that's slightly better about the storm is you're still in control at Niagara Falls. You know, you're on, you've got the sidewalk there and you can choose the distance. But in a storm, when the power of that storm is all around you, encompassing with you, you realize how much less you are in control and you just sort of stand in a reverent awe and fear of the storm. And it's a good illustration. I think of what Peter is saying here. Live in reverent fear before God. You'll see this quote on the side screens from Jen Wilkin. In a wonderful book that she's written, here's how she brings this together. When we fear God rightly, we recognize Him for who He truly is. God of no limits, utterly unlike anything or anyone. And I love the way she brings that together. The God of no limits, uncontrollable, but yet utterly unlike anything or anyone. Utterly holy think of Isaiah in the Old Testament. He comes into the presence of God, and what does he say? Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. Just to be before God, he realized how he had fallen so short. Think of Psalm 115.3. God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. That's the bigness and the greatness of our God. And that's what Peter is saying to the believers he's listening to. Live in reverent fear before this God. And so that's the healthy fear of God, the right fear of God for who he is. But then Peter also in this verse also says why we should fear God. It's in that next part there. Let me just briefly show it to you. It's in the next part where he says, since you call on a father who what? Who judges each person's work impartially. And so now Peter is connecting two things. He said, yes, you have a father who unconditionally accepts you, but now he's giving us a second image of God, the God as judge who judges everyone's work impartially. I haven't been a student for a little while, but when I was a student, you know, and I think they still do this, teachers, I have no idea why. They say, oh, we're going to do a group project. No one likes group projects. Right? Why would we ever want to do a group project? I have no idea the educational value in that. But here's what you know, right? If, you're, if, you, get, if you hear those words and you're, you're not a great student, in fact, you would say, you know, I'm a slacker in school. I'm not that interested. Here's what you know in that moment. I got to get with some smart people, right? I got to find the smart people and I got to weasel my way into their group, right? Because here's what you know that, hey, we're all going to get the same grade and they'll just carry me along. It's a wonderful strategy. And if you're a smart person and you work hard, here's what you know. I got to watch out for those slackers because they're trying to get into my group. I got to pair up with other smart smart people, right? And that's the tension of group projects, right? You sort of know we're not going to get a great, a fair grade on this. Some of us are going to end up doing more work than others, and we don't like it. This can happen at work too, right? Your boss comes into the room, and she says, thanks team, you all did such a wonderful job. 
And you appreciate your boss. She's an encourager. She wants to build you up, and you know that the, pro the end result was good. But if you're there, you're like, you're thinking this. You have no idea what happened down here. We didn't all do a great job. In fact, those two were slackers. They caused problems. The rest of us worked really hard so we could have a good outcome so you could encourage us, but you have no idea what's going on down here. Right, and you appreciate your boss, but you know those moments, and here's what you're saying in your heart. We didn't get a fair grade here. We, this did not get judged accurately. Now, here's what Peter is saying. When God looks down, and when God judges things, he's going to judge it impartially. God's not like that. He will not be off in his judgments. He will be totally accurate. No other factors are going to influence him. There's no bias. He doesn't have any lack of information, and he's not going to be influenced by any other outside source. He is going to come and look at our works totally accurately and totally impartially. And that's what Peter is reminding those who are in Christ that God will do. Now, there is some debate here among scholars is when does this judgment occur? Is it now or is it later? And I think it is actually could be considered both. But if you read this and you're thinking, how do I avoid this judgment? You know, how can I skirt around it? That's not really the point. The, the point is not to hear that there's a judgment and think of an escape clause. The idea is to hear it and let it motivate us to live holy lives. And you see, Peter has brought together two things here. He's bringing together the fatherhood of God and the judge of God, those two factors. And here's what we know with parenting. Just think of it for a moment as parenting. We know that as parents, we are to operate in both of those realms. Yes, the fatherly, the motherly, the unconditional love and acceptance. But also we know that parents have a role for training and instruction and correction and discipline. And it's both of those being operated together. If you meet a parent who's only doing one or the other, we look down on that parenting style. We're like, no, no. Parenting is like Ikea furniture. Some assembly is required. You have to invest. You have to engage. You have to, you know, issue some judgments, correction, instruction discipline. Now, again, how kids turn out, that's a whole different thing. But we would say, you know, again, we would say as parents, we have a responsibility to engage in those things. And in the same way with God as a father, wouldn't we say, God, you're being a good father? Certainly, certainly you're going to judge. Certainly you're going to come and you want to offer correction and training and discipline and help towards your children so that they mature in the faith. And there's all sorts of ways that God does that. So this is Peter's first point. He's saying, how do we keep motivated in the Christian life? How do we be motivated to live a holy life? Fear God. Fear Him. Have a reverent fear towards Him, knowing that He is impartially looking at our works. Now, if you keep running down that road too far, here's where you get this is why we have to get to the second idea. Here's where you keep going, and you get here pretty quickly. You can feel the weight of it on yourself. You feel like if God is this big and this holy, and he is going to evaluate this clearly, here's where you very quickly end up. I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. God is holy, and I am not. And we fear his judgment. We fear the storm 
of His holiness will fall on us. Again, if you ponder those first two points, you feel the weight of them. Peter in no way is trying to diminish who God is. He's trying to say that we should live our lives in total regard for who he is. He's uplifting the holiness of God. But what he does next in verse 18 and 19 is so good. It's like he started, verse 17, with you've got God as a father, and now he's going to, in the middle, he's got live in reverent fear, but now verse 18 and 19, he's got something else to say, which, which saves us from this unhealthy fear of God, this wrong fear of God. Look down verse 18 and 19. These are the best two verses. Here's what he says. For you know that it is not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So there's a whole, two sentences there. It's one, or sorry, two verses, one sentence. But Peter says this, but you know this. If you are in Christ, for you know. He wants to remind us something, right? Live in reverent fear, for you know. What, Peter, do you want us to know? It's really important because we're fearing Right? We're feeling the weight of this. Look down. The key word is this. You were redeemed. What should we know? That you were redeemed. Redeemed means you were bought back. You were purchased back. You were ransomed back. So over here, we're we're, we need to be bought back and brought back to God. So Peter's saying, you know that God redeemed you. Well, what did he redeem us from? You see that right before or right after. He redeemed us from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. So we were apart from God, living an empty way of life, it's all we knew. It's all our ancestors knew. It was total emptiness, meaningless. We kept trying to fill it up, but everything kept draining out. And it was a life of sin. And it's like we're in bondage to sin. It's like sin has enslaved us. It's trapped us. And we can't escape. That's the emptiness of the picture. But then Peter says, now God comes along, and there's a human soul stuck in slavery to sin, stuck in bondage to sin, living in emptiness, and God is going to pay a price to bring that human soul out. Now, you might say, how much does that cost? That's probably going to be expensive. And here's what it says. Peter says, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold. It's like Peter saying, you cannot buy an infinite human soul with finite things, with just gold and silver. In fact, you could say it this way, amass all the gold and silver in the world, compile it all together and say, could we buy one human soul out of sin and out of emptiness? The answer is no. You cannot buy something infinite with something finite, something eternal with something perishable. So then what would pay the price? What would pay the price? You look down in the verse. This is the best part. You were redeemed out of an empty way of life, handed down to you from his ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ. What's the payment to redeem us back? What's the payment to buy us? It's the precious blood of Jesus. What Peter is pointing us here to is the cross of Christ. On the cross, Jesus' own blood paid the penalty for our sin. 
He died for us. It was his death that ransomed, that brought us back out of it. And look at those next, the last closing phrase. A lamb without blemish or defect. The little lamb of God. The pure, spotless, sinless lamb. Think Jesus. Never sinned once. Totally innocent. Not one thing wrong, but yet it is his precious blood that is offered for us. And that's what gets us out of slavery. That's what breaks the chains. That's what opens the door. That's what gets us out of bondage and brings us to this new life in Christ. We have been redeemed. And so, Peter is saying, live in reverent fear, but you've been redeemed by Christ, so you have nothing to fear. Let me explain it this way. Let me go back to the storm illustration. Right? The storm is bearing down on you. You feel the weight of it. It's the righteousness, the holiness, the majesty of God. Or just think of a physical storm. You, you could see the storm coming, the lightning, the thunderbolts, the wind, and the rain. And let's say in that moment as you see the storm coming, it's not that you're in your home, in the safety of your home. You're actually on a rock face and you've been trying to climb this rock face. And suddenly, and you don't have any harnesses or anything just for the sake of the illustration, and you see the storm coming your way and you realize that this storm is too much for you. That if the storm comes upon you, either through the lightning or the thunder or through the wind and the rain, that it will be the end of you. And you realize that, and there you are on the rock face. That's where Peter left us in verse 17. We're in trouble. We see the storm of God. We don't diminish who he is, but then there you are in the rock face, and then you look to your left, and there's a little opening, and you hadn't seen it before. And then you sort of look again because you're desperate. And it seems a little bit bigger than you realized. And so you, you work your way over there and you get to an opening that's about the size of your body and you can peer in and now suddenly it looks like there's more space in there than, than you could ever imagine. And so you hoist yourself up and you sort of fall into this little cave in the midst of this rock face and as you tumble in, you've realized you've got enough space to come back and put your back up against the wall. And then there, then, as you sit there and look out through that hole that you had found, the storm comes. And you see the beauty and the majesty and the thunder, and you're in awe of it, but the storm passes you by because you've taken refuge in the cave. You would never look back on that moment and diminish the storm, but you would say, what I feared now became what I stood in awe of. And this is what Peter is saying here. The storm is the holiness and the justice and the power and the wrath and the judgment of God. But yet, God, as we think of that, then God provides Jesus, a ransom for us, a refuge for us, a cave for us, and we fall into Christ. We take, we, we just embrace all that Christ has done for him. We run into him and we are totally and completely safe. So we live in fear and trembling before God, but it's not a cowering fear because we know Christ has redeemed us from all things. And that's what Peter is helping us do, helping us distinguish between these two things. Yes, we hold God in high regard. 
and stand in reverent fear of him, but we also know that all our sin is covered. It's all been paid for. We take our refuge totally and completely in Christ. And so let me just give some of you an opportunity this morning. Some of you have maybe heard now this morning the holiness of God, the greatness and the majesty of God. And if God is the storm, then you might be trembling this morning. You might be trembling before him. And if you're in that state, would you then run into the refuge of Christ? This morning, if you have been gripped with the reality of your sin, that there is a holy God, would your fear move you to turn from your sin and to trust in Jesus Christ? If you're here this morning realizing that you've lived an empty life and are in bondage to sin, would you know this morning that Christ redeemed you at the great price of his blood? He gave his precious blood to ransom you out, to give you life. Wouldn't this morning you just trust in Christ? Wouldn't today, as you would think, as you would sort of humble yourself before God, you would turn to him and put your faith in him and say, Jesus, be my refuge, be my help, be my forgiver. Wouldn't today, just in your heart, you make that decision? And then for those of us that have done this, here's what Peter would say. Meditate on the cost of your redemption. Meditate on all Christ has done for us, that he is this cave, he is our refuge that we can run into and be safe and use that to motivate you to pursue holiness. Here's how one commentator said it. You'll see the quote on the side screens. Here's how he wrote it. Reason back from the greatness of the sacrifice to the greatness of the sin. Then, to de then determine to be done forever with that which costs God's son his life. So just see the logic of his argument. Start with the greatness of the sacrifice. What was the greatness of the sacrifice? It was Christ himself. The greatness of that sacrifice. Reason back, that helps you understand the greatness of the sin. This is what Peter's arguing. You see what Christ did for you, then see how great your sin is, and then determine, be motivated that we will be done forever with sin that cost God's son his very life. That's the motivation Peter is calling us to. Let me just finish with one illustration that I think helps bring all of these points together. It's a fairly common illustration. You may have heard it. I think I traced it back to John Piper. I'm not sure if he stole it from someone as well. But uh, it's this illustration of an 18-year-old girl. She goes out at night, and then she does not return home and her parents are rightly concerned. They spend a very fearful and fretful night trying to find out where she is. And then as the sun comes up in the morning, the parents receive a ransom note on the door. And, they, and the note reads that you need to pay this amount of money or you will never see your daughter again. Now the parents have some wealth, but not a lot. But they look at the amount and are overwhelmed, but over the next day or two, they do all they can to raise that money. 
right? They mortgage their home. They second mortgage their home. They sell their automobiles. They sell everything in their house. They take off their wedding rings, their jewelry, anything of value. They do all they can because they believe the threat to be real and they love their daughter and they will sell everything to ransom, to buy her back. And they do all of that and then they have it all there before him in the duffel bag, the amount that was asked for. And they arrive at the ransom location on a bridge, you know, and they're on one end and there on the other end is the girl and her kidnapper. And the deal was they would put the duffel bag in the middle, return to the back, their daughter would walk across the bridge, walk by the bag, walk to the parents, they would leave and then the kidnapper could take the money. Well, as their daughter approaches the uh, ransom bag, rather than keep walking by, she picks it up herself and sort of gleefully turns around and begins to skip back a little bit towards her kidnapper. And as she arrives there, they exchange a kiss and a hug. And then the parents can see that the daughter is laughing. And she turns around as she's laughing and she looks at them and says, suckers, suckers. Here's what Peter is saying, saying to all who are in Christ, fear ever treating God like that. Fear ever treating the ransom of, the, of Jesus Christ like that. May we see all that he has done for us and live, live holy lives, live in reverent fear. Let me pray for us this morning. God, we are overwhelmed with what you have done for us. Overwhelmed and so grateful. And so, God, we thank you, Lord, for the person here today who might ever fear that you would hate them or condemn them. God, we thank you for the good news of Christ that we are totally and completely covered. We can find refuge in Jesus from all of our sin. And, oh, God, we glory in that and the majesty and the greatness of what you have done for us. And so, God, as we would understand all that you have done, God, we pray that you would help us as your people live in light of that. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen and amen. Well, I believe the Fall Fest is all ready for you out there today. So uh, parents, you can get your children. You can head out there. Please enjoy yourselves. Please make sure as you're out there, introduce yourselves. We've got a lot of new people around Harbor. Part of the idea of this is that we would get to know each other. And I hope this morning that you might leave after the Fall Fest saying, hey, I met someone I've never talked with before. I met a new friend or built a new relationship. And as we head out this week and we're reminded of the refuge that Christ does for us, let me just end our service with the four words we always end with. Reminds us that we have a mission this week. Harbor, we are sent.